In ancient Greek legend, Narcissus was the son of a river god. He was strikingly attractive. It was said that Narcissus would live to old age if he never looked at himself. Many women were enchanted by his beauty, but he rejected them all. And one of his fans was called Echo. She adored him, but Narcissus spurned her. Echo was so upset that she withdrew from the world and wasted away until all that was left of her was a whisper. Sometime later, Narcissus went to quench his thirst at a pool of water. And when he went bent down, he saw his own reflection and he was captivated by his own beauty and fell in love with it. But each time he bent down to kiss this beautiful reflection, it seemed to disappear. Narcissus became ever more thirsty, but he wouldn't leave or disturb the pool of water for fear of losing the image of his own reflection. In the end, he died of thirst. And there on that very spot appeared the Narcissus flower with its bright face and bowed neck. Now this legend became very popular in the 20th century. West, in works of art and music, its warning about self-obsession resonates with our time and our individualistic age. And the name Narcissus is even used by psychologists to describe a personality disorder. According to the magazine Psychology Today, a person with narcissistic personality disorder has an extreme feeling of self-importance, a sense of entitlement, and a need to be admired. He is envious of others and expects them to envy him. He lacks empathy and readily tells lies and exploits other people to achieve his aims. To others, he may seem self-absorbed, controlling, intolerant, and selfish. If he feels obstructed or ridiculed, he can fly into a fit of anger and destructive revenge. And such a reaction is called a narcissistic rage, and it can have disastrous consequences. Now, we wouldn't want to be like that, would we? But we are in grave danger because we're not always good at listening. Did you hear that? Listening well to others requires humility, believing that they might know more than we do. They might have a much-needed perspective that's different from ours. They might be wiser than me. I need to doubt my own omniscience. And because we're self-centered by nature and by cultural training, we, we find it hard to listen. As a culture in the West, we are less and less skilled in the art of listening. Why is this? Partly because of constant distractions. We always have one earbud in, listening to something else. We're not really tuning in. There's a superficiality about our engagements. We skim read rather than go deep. Also because we are constantly urged, make sure your voice is heard. And there's some truth in that. But we're not equally urged to listen carefully to others. And because of our relentless self-centeredness, this is sometimes now called the I-gen, the I-generation. And it's a generation that puts I in front of everything and puts me front and center. That makes us emotionally immature and unable to handle reality. Now, according to the Bible, listening is crucial to living well. 
Listening is crucial to living well for at least three reasons. First, those who go through life unable to listen and accept advice are bound for trouble. Aren't they? You've seen it. Secondly, it's impossible to have a real relationship with someone without listening to them. Those people who will not listen, who insist on doing 95% of the talking, whose opinions always dominate and never change, for whom every conversation is pretty much one way, they are not building real relationship. They're talking to a mirror like Narcissus. The third reason is aptly summarized by the scholar Derek Kidner, who wrote a wonderful commentary on Proverbs. He said, it's impossible to get a proper sense of self without a deep reverence for God and an openness to being instructed. It's impossible to get a proper sense of self without a deep reverence for God and an openness to being instructed. So if we want to live well, if we want real relationships, if we want a proper sense of ourselves, if we want to avoid disaster, we must learn to listen. If we want to live well, we must learn to listen. And the book of Proverbs teaches us how to live well uh, in God's world. It deals with the small change, the nitty-gritty of life. Proverbs talks about those things in life that you don't have a rule book for. You know, 95% of life is made up of small decisions that aren't really black or white. They're sort of in the middle. And those areas are crucial to make the right call if we're going to live well. How do we live well? How do we acquire the skill of living? The answer is wisdom. And the Bible has this whole book, Proverbs, uh, devoted to the topic of wisdom. And we're back in that series for one more month. And today we learn that wise people listen. Wise people listen. Proverbs has a lot to say about words. One scholar has counted more than 90 proverbs in the book to do with speech. And five weeks ago, we spent a morning on words, a morning on speaking. And a lot of people have, have, have spoken to me and, and, or t- sent messages to say how challenging and helpful that was. And we found it challenging and helpful in our marriage and family. We learned there that the tongue has the power of life and death. And those who love it will eat its fruit. The tongue can bring life or death in situations. Now today we're going to turn that coin around and look at the other side, which is this, listening. Not thinking today about how we speak, but how we receive words, if we want to live well. And I've got five points. We're going to go quite quickly. You've got all the texts on your handout. Firstly, listen to advice. Secondly, listen to criticism. Thirdly, listen to life. Fourth, don't listen to everyone. And fifth, listen to the Lord. Firstly then, listen to advice. Uh, Chapter 12, verse 15, the first proverb. The way of fools seems right to them, but the wise listen to advice. Now here we have an important contrast, a very typical contrast that is used all through the book of Proverbs. It's the contrast between the wise person and the foolish. And the key difference that's highlighted here is that the wise... Listen to advice. But fools don't. They are convinced that they know best. Why do they need to listen? Now notice in the next two Proverbs, the reasons given for the benefits in seeking advice. Chapter 20, verse 18. Plans are established 
by seeking advice. So if you wage war, obtain guidance. We read here that advice is the way you're going to establish life plans. Not just by working it out in your own head, dreaming dreams and coming up with something on the back of a beer mat, but by seeking, deliberately, intentionally seeking advice from wise people. It says here that if you want wage war, you need guidance. Now, just you know, imagine the risks involved in waging war, in going to war. We visited the Imperial War Museum north in Salford Keys last Saturday. Uh, if you haven't been, a striking, a very powerful museum cause you to reflect. Uh, and, and you saw in that the great costs that w- the leaders calculated before they entered into the Second World War. Grave, grave decisions. Now, if you were going to do that, you want to make sure that you've got the best chance of winning, don't you? You're going to wage war? And to be a victor in life, we need constant advice because we don't know best. Now, secondly, notice what happens, what makes plans fail. This is the third proverb. Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. What makes plans fail? Lack of counsel, but notice the key phrase in the second line. It's about the number of advisors that we need in life. Many. The King James Version has a wonderful translation of this verse. It says this, without counsel, purposes are disappointed, but in the multitude of counselors, they are established. In the multitude of counselors, your purposes are established. Now imagine a multitude of counselors, people giving advice. That you think, well, wouldn't it be incoherent? Aren't they going to come up with different things? They're going to, some of them will give conflicting advice. Some won't understand the full story. How could that give me wisdom? Why is it so important? Because if we only listen to one or two people, you know what we tend to do? We're more likely just to talk to those who already agree with us. If you only ever seek advice from one or two people, you probably pick the people who are close to you. And they are likely to share your point of view. Whereas a range of advisors will bring in wisdom from outside the box. Coming up with perspectives, challenges, ways of seeing things that we would never have seen on our own. You know, I'm always amazed when people make big life decisions without seeking much counsel, without talking to a wide range of people. Why would we do that? Why would we think that it's wise? Perhaps we don't want to hear objections to the ideas that we have. But Proverbs says, seek advice. Search for it. Sell your shirt for it. Actively have the humility to listen and to accept another point of view. Get all the advice you can if you want to live well. Now, a few things I've learned and observed in the last 10 years of being at Grace Church. Seek advice from people of other cultures, right? One of the great joys, a great gift of being in our church is that it's an international church, a church of the nations. That's where Rich got his inspiration for this church name, by the way, through being here with us. In our life group midweek, I looked around a few weeks ago and I realized we're the only British family in here. 
There's people from, Africa, from Nigeria, people from Ghana, family from China, family from Romania, and others. And in the, the council and talking together on those times, we, we learn because they can speak into our world and our culture and our city and our lives in ways we would never see because we're all born like this. One eye shut. Seek advice from people of other cultures. Secondly, seek advice from people of other generations. Now, our culture is particularly bad at this. We tend to think that older people know nothing and they're often ridiculed in the media. But you know what? They know a lot more because they've been around a lot more. You remember the saying of Mark Twain that when he was 18 years old, he realized his father was an idiot. But by the time he was 25, he was pleased to see his father had learned a lot. Actually, it was Mark Twain that had changed. The Bible commands us in the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother. And now he's listening to them. You might, as an adult, you might not have to obey them all the time, but you do need to honor them all the time. Your parents know a lot more. You explorers who are still in here, do you listen to your parents? Not just glaze over whenever they're talking. Things go in one ear and out the other. Seek advice from people of other generations. Thirdly, this one might surprise you, seek advice from non-Christians. From non-Christians. Remember, uh, the great leader, the great prophet, Moses, was overwhelmed with his task of leading Israel, the people of God. He was overwhelmed. He was drowning. And who did Moses reach out to? His pagan father-in-law, Jethro. Jethro wasn't an Israelite. He didn't worship Yahweh, the living God. But he still had great wisdom. And he came in and spoke to Moses at a key point and saved Moses' leadership because he could see what was happening and could bring in much-needed perspective from an older man. By God's common grace, non-believing people often have great wisdom. And Christians sometimes forget that. Don't despise it. And you know what? Your willingness to listen to them may open a door for them to listen to you with the gospel. So my first question after that point is, do you have a wide range of advisors in your life? Do you have a wide range of advisors and could you get them? Secondly, listen to criticism. Now, this is one form of advice that I'm guessing most of us really don't like. Can I ask you to put your hand up if you love being criticised? Not one. Now, let's be honest. We don't enjoy criticism, do we? I am the first to admit this. My finest critic, to whom I've been married for 20 years, as you now know, advised me that I'm good at seeking advice, but very poor at receiving criticism. She said, you have an answer for everything. And I said, yeah, but... <laughs> Just look at these next two proverbs. We, this, is hard, this is hard stuff. This is strong, the strong wine. Firstly, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid. <laughs> Chapter 12, verse 1. The next one says, whoever remains stiff-necked after many rebukes will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. Ouch. These are enough to stop us in our tracks, aren't they? Chapter 12, verse 1, draws a contrast between somebody who loves knowledge and someone who is stupid. Now, this is actually a word we have banned our children from using. 
we have a little mantra. We don't say stupid. <laughs> we don't like the kids calling things stupid. But here it is right in the Bible. Notice here, the person who loves knowledge is someone who actually loves discipline. And that word in the Hebrew language can also be translated correction. Being corrected by, by someone else. It can even at times be used with an even stronger sense of chastening. Chastened, subdued. Now this person loves correction. They are willing to examine their own beliefs. They're willing to change. They listen to critique and they change. How hard that is, isn't it? You know, we all inherit prejudices. You inherited prejudice from your family, from your community, maybe from your friends from your culture. We, tend to th we all tend to think we know best, actually. But we will not grow in maturity unless we are open to criticism. In fact, it says here, if you hate correction, you are stupid. Do we have the humility to accept that maybe five or 10% in any criticism that is true? Now, if we thought that was strong language, Look again at chapter 29, verse 1. A person who has had many rebukes, a lot of critique, a lot of correction has been given to this person, but how do they respond? They remain stiff-necked. Now, what is this image of being a stiff-necked? That is an image drawn from a culture that relied on the horse and the donkey for transport, and it relied on the ox for agriculture. Now, an ox that kept its neck stiff while it was plowing the field and wouldn't be steered left or right by the person guiding it would make an absolute mess of the field, wouldn't it? A horse that kept its neck stiff could not be steered. You imagine you're riding your horse or your donkey and it won't go, go left, go left. It won't go, it's staying on the Off you go over the cliff. It's a bit like a sat-nav with the wrong directions in it. Could lead you into danger. It's certainly useless. Now, in the end, such an animal might actually be destroyed. That's a serious warning that Solomon, King Solomon gives us in this proverb. Those who are stiff-necked, who are so wise in their own eyes that they resist correction constantly, they are heading for disaster. Haven't you seen this? Now, this is true in our general life. It's, it's especially true in our spiritual lives. God is the God of second chances, third chances, fourth chances. God gives us so many opportunities to turn from our sin and our folly and our error and follow him. But if we continue to be stubborn, if we refuse to heed correction from God, if we continue to indulge our sins, if we refuse to repent, the Bible says we are hardening our heart. It's like you're putting a layer of callus over your heart. And you can keep layering it until in the end your heart's like leather. And the Bible warns that there comes a point, there can come a point in a person's life where God says, okay, have your way. And the door of opportunity shuts. The person is so hard-hearted that now God turns from them. So this is serious. We've got to be able, we've got to learn to listen to criticism and we won't enjoy it but in the end we will love it because we know it makes us wise question are you open to criticism will you let voices into your life that point out 
things about you you didn't want to hear? Will you listen to the prompting of the Holy Spirit about your spiritual condition and change? Listen to advice. Listen to criticism. Thirdly, listen to life. So far, we've thought about spoken advice, words. But you know, there's a fascinating angle that comes through in the book of Proverbs. It's that life itself is a great teacher. Life's a teacher. The University of Life and the School of Hard Knocks produces some great graduates. Life teaches us, but only if we'll listen. Just look at these Proverbs here. Chapter 17, verse 10. A rebuke impresses a discerning person more than a hundred lashes a fool. Ouch! This is saying that experience is a great teacher for some. Now, in the ancient world, the worst crimes were punished by lashes. A, a, A knotted cord, sometimes with bits of stone and metal tied into the knots, and a whip of multiple cords, would be used on the bare back and dragged across it to teach the person a lesson and punish them. In 2 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul, listing all the things that he'd suffered for Jesus, reports that on five occasions, he received the 40 lashes less one, 39 lashes. And some say that 40 lashes could kill you. It would certainly put the body into severe shock and trauma. Paul says, five times I had those those 39 lashes for the sake of Jesus. But look here, Proverbs says, a fool can be lashed a hundred times and still not learn anything. This is an exaggerated image. What does the fool learn from a hundred lashes? Very little. By contrast, the discerning person gets a single rebuke, just a single word, maybe a single sentence, and that impresses them and it changes them. Listen to life to experience, to the lashes that come. God is teaching you something through them, especially through the pain. You know, Shakespeare talked about the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. The slings and arrows of outrageous fortune was Hamlet. Life is full of slings, throwing stones at you. Get one in the eye, one in the neck. The arrows, the things that pierce you. Why has this come my way? It's outrageous. Have you experienced disappointment, heartache, grief, stress? You feel battered. You know what? You should be asking, Lord, what do you want me to learn from this? There's something here for me to learn. Don't let me be like that fool. Now, the next proverb introduces three characters. And there's actually three levels of teachability here. It's quite interesting. Notice them, chapter 19, verse 25. Uh, There's... The mocker, the simple, and the discerning. I'll read the the verse. Flog a mocker, and the simple will learn prudence. Rebuke the discerning, and they will gain knowledge. Flog a mocker, and the simple will learn prudence. Rebuke the discerning, and they will learn knowledge. Now, a mocker in the book of Proverbs is not just someone who enjoys banter. It is someone who is a morally deficient person who has no respect for God and no respect for human beings. That kind of intense, aggressive and hostile mockery marks their character. This person is bad news. And even when he is, he's flogged, he learns nothing. But then you notice that the simple do learn. 
They see it when the, mock, the, the mocker is flogged, and they, they learn from it. Now, simple, again, in Proverbs, isn't a description of your IQ or your educational credentials. A simple person is someone who is slow to learn, slow to change, slow to take things on board. They tend not to be open to instruction, but they are not set in their ways. They, when they see the mocker being hit by disaster, they do learn from him. They will learn. But then there's a third group, and this is the group we want to be in. They're the discerning. Notice for them, they just need a single rebuke, and they will gain knowledge because they're open and listening to life. So crucial that we listen to experience, isn't it? The third proverb makes this point with searing power. Chapter 27, verse 22. Though you grind a fool in a mortar, grinding them like grain with a pestle, you will not remove their folly from them. We were on holiday earlier this summer, and we were my oldest son, he's a good cook, and he was cooking for us, and he wanted some black pepper, and all, the only pepper we had was... Uh, those you know whole grain black peppercorns so he got a, a bowl and a knife and he put the peppercorns in and he ground it by hand until those corns were crushed to powder and then we could use it that's a, an image of a pestle and a mortar crushing something until it's ground fine and this is such a sobering image he says if you grind a fool in a mortar like grain with a pestle you still don't remove their folly from them. You can't get it out of them. These people go through the mill. They are not sideways by suffering, and you still will not remove the folly from them. You know, trouble and suffering in life drive some people into the arms of God. They say, I don't understand it, but I know you love me. Lord, comfort me in this time. Trouble and strife can drive you into, into the love of God. And yet for other people, trouble and strife drive them further and further into hardness and bitterness, convinced that a God of love cannot exist. What is it that makes a difference between those two people? It's whether you are wise in your own eyes or not. Now, when we are suffering and we can't see the reason for it, and we usually can't, we are tempted to think that there cannot be a reason because we can't see it. You see the logical fallacy there? So we doubt and distrust God. God, I can't see a reason for this. Therefore, there mustn't be one. So I doubt you and distrust you. And that, by the way, has become the biggest objection to Christianity in our culture. But you can see the logical fallacy. It assumes that we have all the information. We don't. To say that there can't be a God of love when suffering exists is to claim that you can't imagine a God who is infinitely wiser and more loving than you are and has a purpose for all things. Yet this is the God that the Bible reveals to us, one who is infinitely wise and infinitely loving, a God of wisdom who even suffers himself at the cross. Therefore, God loves you and he is at work in your life and in your suffering, even in perhaps especially through it. C.S. Lewis, in a famous quote in the book, The Problem of Pain, said, pain insists upon being attended to. You know, you can't ignore it. Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So can I ask you a question? 
Think about the last time life really hurt. And it might be right now. Think about the last time life really hurt. What did you learn from it about yourself and about God? How did you grow and change? Are you open to listen to life? Fourthly, don't listen to everyone. Now, so far we've been thinking about the skill of listening. We've been urged to seek advice. We've been told to try and get many voices, counsellors, advisors. We've been instructed to be open to criticism, correction, and to listen to experience and life and the things that God puts in our, our path. But here it's an interesting, another aspect of listening in Proverbs is you've got to be discerning. You've got to learn discernment. Not every voice has equal weight. And you have to figure out who's saying what. Proverbs urges us not to be naive or foolish. There are some things we really shouldn't listen to. We mustn't even give them the airtime. There are some people who we actually have to stop from speaking into our ear. And the two areas that are highlighted in these texts, it's on the other side of the page, are deceit and gossip. First two Proverbs, 17.4 and 21.28. A wicked person listens to deceitful lips. A liar pays attention to a destructive tongue. A false witness will perish, but a careful listener will testify successfully. The first one of those says that if we listen to deceitful lips and we pay attention to a destructive tongue that's destroying someone else, it's because we love lies. We enjoy hearing them. Another way of putting this is that the more of a liar you are, the more you'll be willing to listen to deceit. Why is this? If your heart is proud and envious, you will tend to want to justify yourself. You'll find it very hard to think that you're in the wrong. You will hide your own flaws, your own sins, and you'll be overly critical of the failings of others. And so it makes you open to listening to lies. You are more easily deceived into believing flattery where people tell you lies about yourself. And you're more easily led into believing bad things about other people without examining it. Because you want to believe the worst about others. Deceit is toxic. We've always said to our children, five children growing up, uh, you know, we can, we can deal with almost anything you do, but don't lie to us. Because if you lie and we don't know what's really happening, you are destroying our relationship. So always come and tell us the truth, darling. You'll never be punished for telling the truth. Deceit. It's very toxic. It's dangerous to friendship, to families, to community, to churches. Now the contrast in the next verse, 21-28, is is the false witness will perish. This is the person who knowingly gives false testimony. It's not just their words, though, but themselves will be exposed and they will experience disaster. But the careful listener will testify successfully. This is someone who is very careful about what they're hearing. They don't just swallow it hook, line, and sinker. They weigh it. And their testimony will actually be a success. Do you listen to lies... And bad reports about other people, do you secretly enjoy them? Or are you a careful listener who will reject deceitful lips? 
Now, this is closely related to gossip, which is another thing we mustn't listen to. The next three Proverbs are all about that. Chapter 20, verse 19 says, A gossip betrays a confidence. So avoid anyone who talks too much. A gossip knows confidential things about someone else, intimate things, perhaps things that have been revealed one-to-one, secret things. But he or she betrays that confidence to others. They relish sharing the juicy information because it gives them power. Gossip is catastrophic for relationships. Chapter 16, verse 28, the next proverb says, A perverse person stirs up conflict and a gossip separates close friends. A gossip stirs up trouble and and fighting and, 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 and dissent. And, and takes close friends and separates them. And it's perverse. It's twisted. The gossip takes intimate information and shares it in the wrong forum. Either because they just talk too much and they haven't got a control on their mouth. Or because they enjoy the attention that it gives them and the power. But you know, in some ways the solution to this is very simple. It's very simple. And it's in the next proverb. Chapter 26, verse 20. Without wood... A fire goes out. Without a gossip, a quarrel dies down. If you starve a fire of fuel, stop feeding it with wood, what happens? The fire goes cooler, it dies, it goes cold, it's gone. So if you deprive the gossip of the oxygen and fuel of your attention, the quarrel goes away. So let me ask Think about the last time someone came to you with a bad report about a third person or with some gossip. How did you respond? Are you cultivating the discernment of a careful listener? And are you cultivating the courage to say, no, my friend, I don't need to hear this. Thank you. The stakes are high, aren't they? Don't listen to everyone. Fifthly, finally, listen to the Lord. Now beneath all of this wonderful advice and penetrating wisdom is something that's really foundational, something that's deep that underlies it all. Because actually what I've just said about, you know, listening to advice, uh, being open to criticism, letting life teach you, being careful about lies and gossip, all of that actually you could say to any non-Christian, any non-believing person, and and they'd still say, yeah, I can see the sense in that. But there's something underneath that that makes the Christian able to grow and change in a way that no one else can. And that's because the Christian has been changed at foundational level, at the heart level, by believing that they themselves are a guilty sinner and wicked and deserving of God's, God's wrath and anger and have been freely forgiven. It's this, I'll just jump to the last verse. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is a deep reverence for God. Coming to know about the true God and realising his holiness, which is awe-inspiring. He never lies. He never shades the truth. He never does anything wrong. He's spotless in all his ways. That sees the power of God, the one who flung the stars into space and spoke the universe into being and sustains it with a word of power. 
sees the grace of God who constantly loves and accepts even the vilest sinners sees the love of this God love that compelled him to send Christ Jesus our saviour his son into the world the love that took Jesus through his life of perfection and onto the cross the cruel cross the love that took him to the grave and raised him to new life on the third day for our justification the love that sent the Holy Spirit into the world and into the heart of every believer. A Christian has learned that, has been exposed to that truth. And so they have fear of the Lord. Deep reverence. Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. You hem me in, behind and before. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your presence? Where can I flee from you? If I went down to the depths, you're there. If I, if I rose to the heights, you're there. That's, that's Psalm 139. And the psalm ends with a prayer. Search me and know me, O God. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. And there is. And lead me in the way everlasting. You see, the fear of the Lord is, is the best thing you can have because it leads you to a proper view of yourself, a proper view of Jesus Christ and to the way to heaven, the progress of the pilgrim. That fear shows us that we're more wicked and guilty than we ever imagined, um, but we're more loved and accepted in Jesus than we could ever dream. It leads us to repent to grieve for our sins and to turn and change. And, you know, repentance, grieving for our sin and turning from it, is the ultimate teachability. So, my brothers and sisters, we've thought about words and how we receive them. And we're going to finish with that quote that Jess and I, by the way, Jess and I arrived at this independently. She thought of it last night, I thought of it this morning. So there's the Holy Spirit at work for you. James chapter 1, verse 19. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. May God give us the grace to grow in this. Shall we pray?